You are listening to Mosul in the Islamic State. Its episodes contain content which may be disturbing or upsetting. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Mosul and the Islamic State. There are random attacks on security personnel, such as roadside IED attacks on convoys, sniper attacks on bases, shooting street cops on the corner. When I left campus, I looked at the faces of people they, they, as if they were escaping a monster running after them. Among the reasons why we did not go out and leave the city were the statements of Athil al-Nujayfi. A day later, Nujayfi leaves Mosul. In doing so, he condemned Mosulis to a fate he himself wouldn't face. They created the chaos and then they ended that chaos. Today, by God's grace, you have a state and caliphate which will return your dignity, might, rights, and leadership. I know some politicians were asking me to bomb civilian areas. We are trapped between the world's most feared terrorist organization and the nation. Sometimes it felt like the world that thinks we are ISIS enablers. So I was free of all fears that kept me continuing the mission of Mosulai. My name is Omar Muhammad. I was born and raised in Mosul. It's my city. When it was captured by Daesh in 2014, I wrote from the occupied city under the pen name Mosulai. So much has been said about Mosul and the Islamic State, mostly by people outside the city. Now, with my co-host Haroro Ingram, and thanks to the program on extremism at George Washington University, we will tell the untold story of Mosul and the struggle of its people. This story will be told to you by those who were there, and most importantly, by Maslawis themselves. Episode 4 Never Again Part 1 Genocide. When Daesh entered the city, at the time for me it was a collapse, physically and psychologically. I was sleeping on the roof of the house because the electricity was cut and I was hearing their nasheeds echoing through the streets of the city. That moment for me was the moment of great collapse, and I was in despair over any nearby revival operation. That was the Maslawi academic and poet, Mama Juma, reflecting on the devastation he felt when Daesh captured the city of Mosul. And that is where we want to focus our final episode, Maslawi experiences of Islamic State occupation the Maslawi underground resistance to it, the stories you've never heard before, and Maslawi hopes for the future. In the previous episode, we took our listeners inside the Islamic State's bureaucracy as it occupied, as it ruled Mosul. The speed with which the Islamic State was able to implement its system of control, from the outside it seemed extraordinary, but we learned it was because they came to the city with a plan that was years in the making, and that implementing their system of government largely relied on co-opting government departments and institutions that were already there. 
the scope and sophistication of the Islamic State's system of control, its government, with departments of agriculture, education, police, real estate, even a consumer affairs office, was all designed to project the image of a credible, functioning, governing apparatus. More than just a system of control, a totalitarian government to rule the population, the Islamic State in Mosul, like so many other totalitarian regimes in history, was, at its core, a propaganda state. Every department and office had a practical governance purpose that was also designed to ingrain, to reinforce, the Islamic State's system of meaning, its ideology and identity, into the population. For the Islamic State, the failings of their enemies was presented as a sign of divine punishment, while success, whether on the battlefield or in the implementation of its governance activities, was presented as a product of divine grace, a gift from God. So, demonstrating that its system of government was functioning, not just existent, but being used by the population, was portrayed as an expression of the divine will. Now, the lived reality was, as is so often the case, very different, wasn't it, Omar? In the early weeks and months of Daesh controlling Mosul, the city functioned. But in so many ways, this was an illusion. It was an illusion in comparison to what came before. You must remember that Daesh seemed functional because the previous government was so incompetent and corrupt. Daesh also created this illusion of things being stable and functional because of the chaos and mayhem of the first weeks of June 2014. Of course, Daesh created that chaos and mayhem. But most importantly, the illusion that Mosul was functioning better was part of Daesh's strategy. Making people think that Mosul was safe and functioning was part of Daesh's lies and exploitation. When Mosulis fled the city only to find the neighboring borders closed, Daesh made Mosul seem like the city was their only option. If there is only one thing people take from this series, I hope they realize that the people of Mosul, its everyday citizens, they were in an impossible situation. Months and even years of dysfunctional governance, corrupt political elites, an army and police that, for too many citizens, exacerbated tensions and concerns rather than alleviated them. And then the city is overrun by the Islamic State. So now that deadly insurgency has access to millions of dollars all the resources of a state, and tons of weapons and ammunition. And this is why many Mosulis felt that their only option was to endure the time of Daesh. Many felt that they didn't have a dog in the fight. So they focused on surviving and waiting. Maybe we were naive because we thought that if the world is watching us, they knew how bad it is and they will stop this hell. We need to talk about that more, what you and so many other Maslawis have described as hell. To do that properly, we must hear from Mosulis themselves. That is the only way to know what life was really like under Daesh occupation. And so, we have brought together the testimonies of Mosulis from all different backgrounds, 
We have most of these who are Sunni, Shia, Christian, Yazidi, Turkmen, and more. They all have important eyewitness accounts for our listeners to hear. Please listen to what they have to say. On the issue of Daesh, and it is among the most difficult situations that can come upon a person during all her life, we lived through hunger, we lived through pain, we lived through separation, through torment, we lived through many things that are difficult for a person to imagine. Daesh was a blackness on every person in the areas that were exposed to this barbaric organization. They killed, plundered, kidnapped women. They did everything. Nothing remained for us. They took what we loved. They took from us our money. They took from us our homes. And they took our simple dreams. And they left us as wounded people. The crimes that the Daesh terrorist organization inflicted on the citizens besieged in the city of Mosul that stand out are that they would throw youth from the buildings like the Rosdi building. The organization would execute the youth, hang them on electricity poles, and would forbid their relatives from removing their bodies from the poles. Daesh issued all kinds of punishments, including fines and even executions for those who had contact with people outside the city. The crimes of Daesh cannot be counted. Iraq's Shia population were specifically targeted by Daesh, and these communities were devastated in Mosul and its surrounds. The criminal gangs of Daesh carried out the most barbaric crimes against us, as we were forcibly displaced from our regions and homes. I lost my father during the forced displacement on the road. I lost some of my friends and relatives during their control of the city. And I lost some relatives and acquaintances during the liberation, as the criminal gangs of Daesh destroyed the houses of worship. For women, life under Islamic State rule was particularly difficult. Frankly, all the memories I have from that long period of the organization's control of the city of Mosul are very bad memories. And the most prominent of them is the restriction of the person's freedom, or rather the person's freedoms inside the city which amounted to a big prison for the people who lived inside Mosul. We remembered how we were restricted going out and in. We remember how they imposed the veil, and we remember the imposition of black clothing. We remember how we would be expelled from the markets if we were not covering the palms of our hands or if we took down the second part of the covering. We remember how the youth would be flogged for issues with their beards, such as trimming it, or adorning it, or for wearing the clothes they liked. We can remember many memories from this bitter stage. As the Mosul scholar and photographer Ali Baroudi similarly says, And the rice is, it wasn't life at all. It was like, uh, Mosul was like a big a big uh, jail in which you you are not allowed to do whatever you want to do. It's all about do's and don'ts and executions. Um, 
and people in a black and the uh, actions in a black and uh, you never know what happens next and you see your heritage disappear like uh, th- these days mark the, the dark days of demolishing like Nebunis, Nebijorgis, uh, Nebishit, like all these landmarks which are associated with our uh, memory as, as Musulis. Ali's reflections there echo two recurring themes that emerge in our discussions with Mislawis. The loss of life and the destruction of Mosul's heritage. The destruction of Mosul's heritage was very important to Daesh. Throughout this podcast, we have spoken about the Islamic State's system of meaning, that is, Daesh's ideology, identity and values, which it tried to make us adopt To achieve this, they knew that they had to destroy our existing system of meaning. They had to destroy mostly identity, values, and culture. These had to be removed, and that is what Daesh tried to do. Mosulis are very diverse people, and Mosul is a city of paradoxes. It is an ancient city, the home for many religious faiths, and so it can be very conservative, but it is also cosmopolitan. Why? Because it is an ancient city, because it is a melting pot of identities, cultures, ethnicities, and ideas. And like so many great cities of the world, the combination of that cosmopolitanism and the city's conservative streak, it fuels tensions that can be problematic, but it also fuels opportunities that so often drive creativity in academia, culture, music, and the arts. Exactly. And those things that make Mosul complex are the things that make us so proud of our city. In all these interviews, we hear people proudly say, I am Mosuli. It is a central part of who we are as people and how we see each other. Daesh knew that. And so, Daesh tried to erase our Mosuli identity. I remember the oppression of Daesh, the killing of people, forced displacement, violence, devastation of the city, blowing up of historic sites and churches. I remember how Daesh entered Mosul and how they destroyed the churches and mosques that are considered an important part of the city's heritage. Before our eyes, our city was being destroyed and its people were killed. We have experienced so much death and destruction over the years. But just because we have experienced so much loss doesn't mean it impacts us less. Sadly, Omar, I think a lot of people watch the news and see yet another tragedy in some part of the world and soothe themselves by thinking they're used to it by now. They value life differently over there. Or after so much loss, they just feel numb. Anyone who thinks this is trying to comfort themselves. I promise you, it is not true. Think for a moment about all that we have described so far. The totalitarian control, the crucifixions, child soldiers, the beheadings, the abuse of women, public lashings and executions. It goes on and on. And yet, amid all of this, while Daesh are fighting a multi-front war against a coalition of different forces, it is systematically targeting minorities in Iraq. Daesh are trying to eliminate 
these people. And one of the most high profile and horrific attacks was the Camp Spiker massacre. After the fall of Mosul on June 10, 2014, Islamic State forces exploited the momentum they had generated with their capture of Mosul by then sweeping southward towards Tikrit. On June 12, thousands of Iraqi Air Force cadets were training at Camp Spiker, and as news spread that Daesh had captured Tikrit, about 3,000 cadets were told by commanding officers to change into civilian clothes and were sent on leave. However, many were intercepted by the Islamic State, who separated Shia and non-Muslims from their colleagues, crammed them into open-top trucks, and took them away to various locations to be tortured and killed. At least 1,500 unarmed Iraqi Air Force cadets were massacred by the Islamic State that day, their bodies thrown into the Tigris or dumped into mass graves. So how do we know the details of this massacre of mostly Shia and other minorities? The Islamic State were proud of it, documenting the slaughter and disseminating photos and videos of the massacre and its propaganda. Islamist militants boast that they've slaughtered 1,700 government soldiers. Islamic State militants captured and executed hundreds of cadets from the Camp Spiker military base near Tikrit, documenting the events on film. At the time, the news spread very fast. And we were aware that an awful massacre had occurred near Tikrit. We were, of course, in the middle of our own slaughter at the time. And all of this was just overwhelming for us. For many Mosulis, these stories of massacres in places outside of Mosul, plus the blame Mosulis were receiving from Iraqi politicians and the media. All of this just reinforced the impossibility of our situation. That we had nowhere to go and no one was there to help. And then in August 2014, we started to hear that the Yazidi communities in Sinjar, west of Mosul, were being targeted for extermination. Genocide. Yes, absolutely it was genocide. Daesh intended to destroy the Yazidis as a people. The Genocide Convention Article 2 is very clear in its definition, which includes two key elements. The first is the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial or religious group. The second is engagement in five acts to achieve this goal. Killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting conditions that will result in their destruction, preventing bears within the group, and the last one, forcibly transferring children for that group to another group. Establishing intent is crucial. There is a special intent with genocide to specifically and deliberately target the group. Not target the individuals as such, but target individuals because they are a member of that group. And the Islamic State's attacks on Iraq's Yazidi communities is a clear example 
of precisely that genocidal intent in action. Murad Ismail is a Yazdi community leader and the director of the Sinjar Academy. He spoke frankly about Daesh's horrifying attacks on Yazidis. Murad began by reminding us that Daesh's genocidal intentions against the Yazidis have deep historical roots. The ISIS, uh, the Al-Qaeda attacked the Yazidi community back uh, in 2000, between 2004 and 2007. Uh, in 2007, the largest bombing in Iraq took place against two Yazidi towns uh, south of Sinjar. It was very clear that the radicals see Yazidis are, uh, you know, uh, people of not a legitimate faith. Uh, and that, you know, they would target them whenever they have the opportunity. With ISIS, uh, it was a few, when, when they took over Mosul and they took over other places in Iraq, uh, uh, it was, uh, they were saying in their social media and in their media generally that they will be going to Sinjar. Uh, we were not expecting that they would be able to take over Sinjar, you know, at least that quickly and, and that fast. Uh, but they did, um, you know, it was August 3rd, 2014, where the, um, the, the attack happened at Sinjar, uh, uh, that put Sinjar under siege from all the direction, you know, it happened what happened in killing the enslavement uh, of large number of Yazidis. The fall of Mosul was crucial because it provided a solid base, an anchor for Islamic State operations in Iraq. The Islamic State controlled other towns and cities, but Mosul was the jewel. It also meant that the Islamic State had access to resources, money, technology, arms and people, that it could use to not only expand its operational activities, but strengthen its strategic posture. One of the most horrifying results of this was that the Islamic State had the resources to implement a policy of genocide targeting Yazidi communities. Even with Daesh's capture of Mosul and Lentalafar, which is only a 30-minute drive to Sinjar, the Yazidi community, tragically, thought that it would be safe. They thought they would be safe because of reassurances by security forces that the city of Sinjar and its people would be protected. Uh, so we were, uh, we were worried that ISIS would come to Sinjar, and indeed it came to Sinjar. I would say that we did not take it as seriously as we should uh, as a community, uh, and, and as a people, um, and, and, uh, and also, um, as you know, Sinjar was protected. There were security forces in Sinjar. Uh, the community was, was, was receiving assurances that they would be safe and that the, uh, security forces, uh, they were mostly the, uh, the, the uh, of the Kurdistan region in Sinjar. Um, they did give assurances that Sinjar would be protected. And, and that was not the case when ISIS came. It fell within, uh, very short time, very short time. We're talking about this in one hour of fighting that Sinjar failed. So that when, when I took over, it was very quick. And uh, it was, um, it was very quick in terms of controlling the land and, and uh, also in terms of committing the crimes as, as, as we all saw, um, mass killing in the first couple of days and also mass enslavement. I must warn our listeners that what they are about to hear are the details of a genocide. When ISIS, before even ISIS came to Sinjar, they already agreed, the, the clerks and the religious, uh, if, you, if you want to call them religious community of ISIS, uh, they interpret the Yazidi faith as illegitimate faith, not people of their book, and they already 
had a plan what to do when they took over Sinjar. Uh, and this plan was uh, because they are not people of book, then you know they are subject to certain uh, criteria. So uh, when ISIS took over Sinjar, um, when the security structure fell, terribly fell, most of the males, I would say, were killed either in the period between August 3rd and August 15, 2014, or later after a few months uh, being held uh, captive in Tel Afar and other places. Uh, the case with women and children um, was... Uh, is to take them as uh, slaves. Uh, and the women, uh, you, so you're talking about all the females uh, that they could capture. You're talking also about all the children who couldn't, who didn't have enough time to flee from, from their towns. Uh, and they, uh, they, they took them as, uh, as captives. Now, uh, in some in case of Kocho, for example, the elderly women that they didn't want for sex, they also executed them. And there's um, at least one mass grave uh, uh, close to, to Sinjar Institute uh, of uh, 86 Yazidi women who were a uh, little bit old. When you call them old, some of them were only 35 years or 38 years that actually didn't want them, and they decided to kill them. Um, of, in all the cases, uh, it ended by um, taking the children away from their mothers uh, or from their sisters or, or, or family members. Uh, the children, uh, boys, were, were put into... Uh, a systematic process through the schools to be jihadist and to be taught first uh, the Quran and also then to be used as uh, soldiers uh, in, in various ISIS fights in Syria and Iraq. And a lot of them got killed uh, fighting uh, alongside ISIS militants. Uh, as you know, for women, uh, for girls uh, and women uh, who were young, younger in their age, uh, they were given, uh, they were put into ISIS uh, slavery machine. I would call it a machine because it was a machine and a system. It wasn't uh, forcing them to marry someone and staying with them, but it was um, it was really a, an enslavement a system where a woman would be given to a fighter or to someone who would buy her, would, would keep her for, 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 for a certain number of days or, or time or, and then give it to somebody else. The Islamic State systematically slaughtered Yazidi men removed Yazidi boys and girls from their families, forced Yazidi women and Yazidi girls from the age of nine into sexual enslavement, and murdered Yazidi women deemed too old to be slaves servicing its militants. Yazidi boys became child soldiers in the Islamic State's ranks, while Yazidi girls faced the unimaginable terror of being trapped in the Islamic State's sanctioned system of child rape. I've personally sat down with girls who were over the age of nine or, or 10 or 14. I've met girls personally uh, who were, um, were uh, raped and they did it uh, in a very, um, I would say, inhuman way. And now for the children who were, children who were taken, uh, who were not um, over the age of nine, who were under the age of nine, the, uh, the female children were given to families. Uh, and mostly to ISIS families to it sometimes to raise them, sometimes for the girls to keep them until they become nine, and then they use as six slaves. For boys, were either put in their families until they are old enough to to be soldiers or to be to be started taking training, or they were, uh, you know, uh, some families took them to raise them and take care of them. And um, and we have at least so we had six thousand eight hundred who were taken as um, were kidnapped. 
6,800 uh, plus. Uh, from that number, still about 2,750 or more uh, still in captivity. I would say, you know, almost any crime you can think of happened in Sinjar. The attempted genocide of Iraq's Yazidis was a key factor in the establishment of the U.S.-led coalition against Daesh. Good evening. Today I authorized two operations in Iraq, targeted airstrikes to protect our American personnel and a humanitarian effort to help save thousands of Iraqi civilians who are trapped on a mountain without food and water and facing almost certain death. Stranded on a barren mountaintop and surrounded by violent Islamic extremists, thousands of Yazidis have spent 10 days looking death in the face. This is the crew aboard an Iraqi Air Force helicopter while rushing an aircraft over ISIS front lines. The civilians trapped on Sinjar Mountain. Daesh is responsible for genocide against groups in areas under its control. Daesh is genocidal by self-proclamation, by ideology, and by actions in what it says, what it believes, and what it does. As with the Spiker massacre and other crimes committed by Daesh, the group was proud of its attempts to eliminate and enslave the Yazidi people of Xinjiang and its surrounds. An October 2014 article published by the Islamic State, titled The Revival of Slavery Before the Hour, declares, Upon conquering the region of Sinjar in Wilayat Nineveh, the Islamic State faced a population of Yazidis, a pagan minority existent for ages in regions of Iraq and Sham. Their continual existence to this day is a matter that Muslims should question, as they will be asked about it on Judgment Day. Their creed is so deviant from the truth that even cross-worshipping Christians for ages considered them devil-worshippers and Satanists. It is ultimately ironic that Obama cites these devil-worshippers as the main cause for his intervention in Iraq and Sham. The article clearly articulates the Islamic State's premeditated intent to use its legal scholars to justify a targeted campaign of murder, enslavement and rape of Iraq's Yazidis. Prior to the taking of Sinjar, Sharia students in the Islamic State were tasked to research the Yazidis to determine if they should be treated as an originally polytheist group or one that originated as Muslims and then apostatized. Accordingly, the Islamic State dealt with this group as the majority of Islamic jurists have indicated how these polytheists should be dealt with. Unlike the Jews and Christians, there was no room for non-Muslim taxation payment. Also, their women could be enslaved, unlike female apostates, who the majority of the Islamic jurists say cannot be enslaved and can only be given an ultimatum to repent or face the sword. What this means is that Jews and the Christian could, in theory, live under the Islamic State's rule by paying the jizya. Jizya is a tax paid by non-Muslims. Also, Jewish and the Christian women were not allowed to be enslaved. However, the Yazidis didn't qualify for this statue due to their beliefs. The article chillingly echoes Murad's description of the Islamic State's attack on Sinjar. After capture, the Yazidi women and children were then divided according to the Sharia 
amongst the fighters of the Islamic State who participated in the Sinjar operations, after one-fifth of the slaves were transferred to the Islamic State's authority. Next time on Mosul and the Islamic State. This tyranny of Daesh needs to be exposed in the crucible of the courtroom. Acts constituting genocide had been committed by Daesh, but the full panoply of crimes requires more urgent investigations. I call it justice in the shadows. This is not justice in the openness and transparency. The Yazidi genocide need to be seen and the depth of the crime need to be seen. The radicals have froze again in Iraq and this time the activists who fought against ISIS are very scattered, very scared and they do need the help of the Western. If anyone wants to help, they just need to invest here in the city. Having music. In the city of Mosul, that was the biggest revenge, you know. It's better to die once than being silent and die 100 times a day. The youth are no longer afraid. We can't allow ourselves to be chained to our past, but if we don't learn from it, we will repeat it.